um, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Amos. Grab a Bible and open it to the book of Amos. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the pew or the chair in front of you. It looks like this. You could turn to page 811. We're going to go, we're going to do an overview. We're not reading every verse in Amos, but we are going to do an overview of the book of Amos. So as you look there, we will cover this prophet, this prophet's message, really his ministry of prophecies over the years, all compiled here in one book for us to get the message, the message of this book. The title of this message is God Roars in Judgment or Heed God's Roaring Judgment. It's an image from the beginning of this passage. If you do get tired, feel free to stand up and stand in the back in the foyer as well um, if, if that would help you this morning. Let me read to you Hosea 1, verses 1 and 2. And then, let me see. And then Hosea 9 Oh, no, we'll do the historical context. Hosea 1, 1 and 2, and then Hosea 5, 25 to 27. Okay, I'll tell you when we get there. Hosea 1, 1 and 2. Hear God's words now through Amos. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. What he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. Now turn to Amos chapter 5 in the right, chapter 5 verse 25. Here's the judgment declared on the house of Israel. 525. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have kept, but you have, I'm sorry, but you have taken up Sukkoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So, therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. Father, with our Bibles open before us, we pray that we would have ears to hear your roaring judgment, your righteous judgment. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see this judgment, to feel the weight of it, and that that would lead us to humility, lament, brokenness, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, and then hope in Christ and the gospel. So open our hearts to you, bless us with attention, comprehension, thinking through an ancient book from another faraway place and faraway time that is so different from ours, yet the message is so relevant today. We need your help, Father, so help us, we pray. Help the children as well, help the children teachers as they learn from your word today as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul wrote very famously in the book of Romans something that resonates with every Christian deep down in their hearts. He said this, I don't understand what I'm doing because I don't practice what I want to do. I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Ever feel that way? I don't do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me, who will save me 
from this body of death. Paul was frustrated with himself. I want to do good. I want to serve. I want to honor God. I want to rejoice in God. I want to spread a passion for this joy in God to everyone so that they might taste and see that God is good. But I don't do what I want to do. He even says in that same chapter in Romans 7, every time I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. You ever feel that way? Every time you want to do good, evil is right there, blocking you, distracting you, trying to push you off from what God is calling you to do in any given moment. In other words, our problem is that we are given over to being lethargic and complacent. We can realize that it's, it, this is the normal plight. I mean, if the apostle Paul struggled this way, who am I, right? If he struggled that way, of course I'm going to struggle that way. So because this is typically, this is typical and normal, maybe this is just the way it is. So it's okay for me to just be complacent and make an excuse and say, well, at least I know why I'm not doing it, as if that's good enough. So we get complacent, we get distracted, we get busy with other things in life that we don't do the good that God is calling us to do. And our problem really is deep down, we're kind of, Jek uh, we're kind of uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, we're kind of conflicted here because in one sense we're content with our complacency. And at the same time, we're frustrated at ourselves for being content with our complacency. You ever feel that way? You get content, you get used to it, and then this is the way it always is, and then you get frustrated with yourself, and then you forget about the frustration, you just go back to complacency. And then you get frustrated again, you go back to complacency. And we kind of go back and forth between frustration and comfortability with our habits, our habitual inaction, our habitual good desires that are never fulfilled and completed because we're used to living that way. Well, God has a word for us, and it's a word that comes from a shepherd in southern Judah. His name is Amos. Amos is a sheep breeder from Tekoa in southern Judah, and he has a prophecy for the nations. He's in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he has a prophecy primarily for the northern kingdom of Israel. So imagine someone coming up from Mexico or down from Canada to America to start preaching against our social sins. You're like, dude, go back to your country, Canada or Mexico, or so somewhere out there, just local, like literally neighboring, neighboring country, where you get a prophet speaking for God from them to start convicting the, the churches in America. So imagine a Christian from, from, um, from Mexico or Canada coming here and having a public ministry convicting and saying that, saying, pointing out all the wrongs in all of our churches, legitimately. We wouldn't take too kind to that. We're like, you're not even, you know, we might start um, getting distracted with other things and making excuses for our sins. But that was Amos. He, and he was going to Israel. Israel was an affluent society at this point. They're more affluent than Judah in the south. Jeroboam is the king during this time, not the first Jeroboam, but a second Jeroboam. And God gave him large victories over, over his battles. So even though he was a wicked king. So if you look at 2 Kings 14, 23 to 29, you don't have to turn there now, but you can look at how successful his kingship was. His, his, king, his kingdom and his reign was so successful that the people were wealthy and rich and well off. And when you're wealthy, healthy, and well off, you can get complacent, right? Do we need God when everything's going well? Maybe not. Things are going well. You can still go to church and go do your religious things, but you don't really need God. And when you don't really need God, you don't really hear God. And when you don't really hear God, you continue in disobedience without even knowing it, like a frog in a kettle slowly being boiled to death. So this is Amos' task to, 
to the nations and to Israel. He's coming as an outsider to preach judgment to them. And here's his, here's his thought. Look at verse two again. He said, and he's literally quoting Joel. We just did Joel last week, Joel 3.16. He's quoting Joel 3.16 here that the Lord will roar. Um, well, Joel said in Joel 3.16, the Lord will roar from Zion. And Amos is now present tense. And here's what it says in verse two. Yahweh the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. When you think of the Lord roaring, what animal do you picture roaring? A lion. There's several times in the, in the Old Testament where it'll pick up the lion roaring. And God roaring in the minor prophets and the major prophets is a major theme. God roars in judgment. I think in Joel it was that God roars so loud that his people come back to him. The people who are straying and they're in exile, Yahweh roars like a lion and all of his people repent and start gathering back to him. But here, it's not the roaring of restoration, gathering his people back. This is the roaring of judgment. He's kicking them out. And we just read that from chapter five. So if you're gonna grasp the message of Amos, it's nine chapters, we're not gonna read every verse, we don't have time for that. But if you're gonna grasp the message of Amos, we're gonna, we're gonna grasp it in, in three ways. But the main goal of it is to feel God's roaring judgment. Have you ever heard a lion roar? Um, whenever we go to the zoo, every time now, I always try to roar as deep as I can to the lion. To try, they, you know, lions sleep 20 hours a day and they're up for four hours. So if you go to the LA Zoo, odds are they're gonna be sleeping. Very rarely will you catch a lion awake, but I'll, I'll just like sit there and like roar for like five minutes straight and just try to get them to come up. And I've been able to like, you know, get them to kind of look for a little bit or, but have you heard them roar versus a human roaring? I mean, that roar carries it's, it's such a loud, magnificent roar, but um, that's what God's doing here. And you could almost, when you see it, you can't help but stand in awe. Like you could feel, you could feel the roar. Yeah, you could feel the power of it. Um, and, and when God roars, the question is, are we gonna feel that power? Or when God roars, does it sound like a whisper to you? Does it sound like a cat purring? It's just, it just doesn't even register to you that the God of the universe is roaring in judgment for your attention. That's what Amos wants us to do this morning. He wants us to feel the roaring judgment of the Lord, his just and righteous judgment, so that we seek God and seek good until his kingdom comes. Okay, so here's the main goal again. Feel the roaring judgment of God so that you seek God and seek good until his, coming, until his kingdom finally comes, okay? God wants you to feel it to the point where you're gonna seek him, you're gonna seek God, you're gonna seek good until his kingdom finally comes. Okay, so we're gonna feel this in three steps. There's three steps to feeling this judgment. And the first one we're gonna try to do, hopefully I do it as fast as possible because it's not Amos's main point, but it is a setup. So if, number one, we're gonna hear God's judgment on the nations, okay? Hear God's judgment on the nations. Number two, we're gonna hear God's judgment on Israel. And then number three, we're gonna see God's judgment on Israel and his purpose, okay? So we're gonna hear God's judgment on the nations, all the neighboring nations. Then we're gonna hear God's judgment on Israel. That's the focus. And then Amos is gonna give us five visions so that we could see, we could picture in our minds the judgment of God. We could see his judgment and the purpose of the judgment, okay? So hear judgment on the nations, hear judgment on Israel, hear or see God's judgment on Israel and its purpose. Let's go to number one. So number one, it's gonna be chapters one, verse three to chapter two, verse five. Hear God's judgment on the nations. 
Verse 3 says, The Lord says, here's his roar, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. In verse 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. In verse 9, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom. Verse 11, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword, he stifled his compassion, and his anger tore at him continually. The Lord says in verse 13, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Chapter two, verse one, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. And verse four of chapter two, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of Yahweh and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. So what's going on here? Amos is coming to Israel and he's declaring judgment on, now just look up here for a second. So you have Israel and you have Judah right here, okay? Israel and Judah, hold on, get the map, okay. So right here on this side is the water. So you have, you have the uh, Mediterranean Sea over here, you have Israel and Judah. Now he's gonna call for judgment on Damascus, which is like over here, the northeast. Then he's gonna call it on Gaza, which is actually in Judah here in the southwest. Then he's gonna call for Tyre up here. Then he's gonna call for judgment over here and here and here. And basically, uh, Edom right next to him. And then, Tyre, um, not Tyre, Moab and Ammon. And then Judah, the southern kingdom. So in other words, all of the neighbors around Israel are being judged. See that? He's going from here to here, up here, and then around back here. And he's just going on all sides and saying around Israel, all of these people are being judged. And so the judgment, what is the judgment here? They threshed Gilead. In other words, they... Um, 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 Damascus punished the northern kingdom and so they're going to get fire and broken gates and the ruler's going to get cut off. For Gaza in the southwest of Israel, um, they handed the whole community over to Edom so they're going to get fire. God's going to send fires to them and burn down their places, their cities. Their ruler's going to get cut off and their cities are going to be destroyed. For Tyre, same thing. Fire and burn citadels. For Edom, they, Edom is Esau. Do you know who Esau is? The brother of who? Jacob. And Jacob was renamed... Israel. So Israel and Esau are brothers. The nation of Israel and Edom, they're brothers. And so Edom betrayed their brother and pursued their brother with a sword. So what is God going to do? He's going to burn them, their cities with fire and their citadels. For Ammon and Moab, these are the sons of Lot and the grandsons of Lot at the same time. Uh, Genesis 19. For Moab and Ammon, he's going to pronounce judgment on them as well for, for working against, well, at least for Ammon, for... Um, terrorizing God's people and expanding. Now, all of these other people that are getting judged so far, not, not Moab yet, but just up to Ammon, they're all getting judged because who are they attacking? The nation of Israel or Israel and Judah. Why would God punish them for attacking Israel and Judah? Because God said in Genesis 12, 3 to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so in, in, in Abraham's great nation, the people of God, and this is the old covenant people of God at this point, when they are cursed, you are cursed. When, they, when you bless them, that means you must be following their God, Yahweh, so you'll be blessed as well. Okay? So you bless them, you're blessed. If you curse them, you're cursed. And all of these nations surrounding curse them, and so therefore, they are being judged as well. But Moab is different. Look at Moab. 
in chapter 2, verse 1, their, their, their sin is strange. I, I, I wonder if you just kind of got puzzled when you heard it. What is he punishing Moab for in verse 1 of chapter 2? They, he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. What does that mean? I'm punishing you, Moab, because you, you know what you guys did? You guys burned the king of Edom, which is not the people of God. That's Esau's nation on the other side of the Jordan River. You burned their king's body to lime. What does that mean? Well, this is another lack of restraint in war. So when you're at war with another nation, there are rules to engagement. Right? You don't attack women and children. There's civilians. You only, there's certain ways you engage. But when, when nations go really harsh, they just start attacking. They forget the rules. And they just really want to punish the people. So what they did here, apparently, is they, when they were done desecrating the land, they wanted to desecrate the dead. So they took the, the, the king's body out and burned it. And so God, God doesn't like that. And it's not even the people of Israel. Those who commit... Uh, the judgment of God, here's another thing, or here's the point. The judgment of God is not limited to those who attack God's people. All humans are made in God's image. When you attack another human, you attack who? You attack God. You sin against another human, you sin against God. And God holds people accountable for attacking other humans. So he holds them accountable for this. We need to respect other people. That's a universal divine demand. People are made in God's image. And if you don't respect people, whether they're unborn or whether they are dying of natural death. So we talk about the sanctity of human life, the dignity of human life from, from, the, from conception all the way to natural death with our culture of death plaguing our society today. And God will hold people accountable. He will hold societies accountable. He will hold the people in those societies and individuals accountable for the, the, way, the way they treat other humans whether they're Christians or not, whether they're, image, whether they're God's saved people or not, his covenant people or not. So then we go to Judah, and Judah is judged. Why? Look at um, Judah, or not Judah, sorry, Amos 2, 4. They have rejected what? This is going to become a theme in Amos, and Andrew, Pastor Andrew alluded to it already. What has Judah done wrong in, in, in Amos 2, 4? They have rejected what? The instruction or the law of the Lord. They have, they have rejected the Torah of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies of their ancestors followed, uh, their, their ancestors followed have led them astray. What's their problem? They rejected the Bible. Now get this, okay, because this happens in churches. Rarely do they say explicitly, I reject the Bible. That's not how most people reject the Bible when they're God's covenant people. You know how most people reject the Bible? Look at the next phrase. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord and they have not done what? There's a parallel here in Hebrew poetry. The parallel sometimes can explain the other line. What have they done? How have they rejected God's word? They have not what? Kept his commandments. If you say you love the Bible, but you don't obey the Bible, you're rejecting the Bible. If you, if you say, well, I, I, at least I know what I'm doing wrong. Knowing what you're doing wrong without actually repenting and, and, and seeking God for forgiveness and change is still rejecting what you know to be wrong. A lot of times we find comfort in knowing what we're doing wrong while we're still complacent in our wrong. That is unacceptable to God. You don't know it as you ought to know it, is what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 8. If you're gonna receive God's word, you can't just pay lip service to it, you can't just read it, you actually have to obey it. Which is why I did take a little bit of time to say to the church um, that we failed to 
to um, even consider the Constitution. I'm not saying we're gonna, you're gonna disobey God if you vote against the Constitution, but if the Bible patterns a plurality of pastors, for example, and we're not moving in that direction, are we really, gonna, are we really running towards God's word as a church? Now, I, don't think our, I think our church is largely in spirit going in that direction, but that's just something we have to, you have to consider. When you talk about the Bible, it's not just paying lip service to the Bible. It's actually obeying it. It's actually taking responsibility for your actions. So, church family, are we receiving God's word? Do you crave God's word? Do you get hangry over God's word the way you get hangry over food? You know what hangry is, right? Hungry and angry. You're so hungry you get angry. Do you get hangry over God's word? That you haven't had enough of it lately and you haven't had time and you're, you're going to carve out time to make sure you read and meditate on God's word so that you can actually think about it day and night? Or, if you don't do that, not only will you not do it, what do they do wrong? Instead of not keeping a statute, when you, don't obey, when you disobey the Bible, it's not that you don't obey nothing, you obey something else. When you disbelieve the Bible, you believe in something else. What are they believing in? In verse, th- verse 4. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. The lies that their ancestors have followed have led them astray. Who are the ancestors? Those who have gone what? Before. Those who have gone before, yeah, they have gone astray, but they have gone before them, and then they went astray, right? Um, if you're believing the lies of your ancestors, what do, we call, what do we call what's handed down from the ancestors to us? Tradition. Tradition isn't always bad. But when tradition disobeys God's word, it's always bad. Tradition, tradition bowing down to God's word can be, is, is okay as long as it's functionally bowing down to, down to God's word. So in other words, here's what happens. When you don't obey God's word, you're carried up into some culture. Whether it's a church culture, a, a societal culture, a family culture, you have some sort of culture you're, you're swept up into. The reason you disobey God's word and you don't let the Bible shape your culture is because you're gonna give in to some other culture. Your marriage culture, your family culture, your, um, you know, the church culture. And so it's not always right. It's not always wrong, but it's not always right to say we've always done it that way. Right? Because you could follow the lies of your ancestors. Now, sometimes, again, if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It's not, it's not always wrong to say we've always done it that way. It just depends, right? Depends on the Bible. You always have to go back to what? The Word of God. You can't be content. You test everything by the Bible, and then you obey with joy and gladness because God's commands are not burdensome, John tells us. They're gifts to us. Now, here's God's point of the, the bulk of our sermon is going to focus on Israel. But here's God's point um, with, with talking about all these other nations. God is showing, he's about to blast Israel. But he's showing that he's fair. He's not picking on Israel. He's not sending some outsider to come inside to, to pick on Israel. This outsider is picking on everyone, including his own people, Judah, right? In other words, God is impartial. God doesn't have favorites in the sense that he's unfair with those who are not his chosen people. God judges everyone fairly, consistently. Do you ever feel like God's unfair to you? I think all of us could say yes at some points, right? That God is unfair to us. In our sinful moments, we can think that God is being unfair to us. But God is consistent in his judgment and justice. Not like those TV judges. Watch any TV judges? Daytime TV judges who judge not only for justice, but judge for ratings? That's not God. He's always fair and he's always just. Church family, what does this mean for us or Christians? 
If you're a Christian, you need to hear this because Christians don't keep this in mind, but they should. God is going to judge you. But I'm a Christian. God is going to judge you. All your works will be judged before God. You need to let that sink in. You need to let the roar get into your bones. God is going to judge you. It is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And then there's a great white throne judgment after that. So at least two. One is separating, you're either in paradise or in hell and then great white throne judgment, then you're either in the lake of fire or the new earth. Okay, if you're not a Christian, what's God telling you? Guess what? God's not only judging non-Christians or Christians, he's also gonna judge you if you're not a Christian. God's judging everybody. So if you're not a Christian, here's what God is telling you. God is going to judge you for your sins as well. And you know what the Bible says? The penalty for sin, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So the death is not just temporary death, it's eternal death. If you're not a Christian, listen, please. If you forget everything else, as we talk about this ancient book from a long, long ago culture, listen to this. God will judge you for your sins. He'll judge all of us for our sins. And we all deserve to be damned and condemned in hell forever for our sins. And you will stand before God in judgment. And we can't get away from him. So that's the bad news. The good news is God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead if, if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you this morning. I'm inviting you this morning. God from heaven is roaring judgment to you and calling you to put down your rebellion, to put down your excuses and to put down your religion and even to put down your goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone, his life, his death, his resurrection. And he will give you his Holy Spirit. He'll forgive you of, his, of all your sins and he'll give you power in the Holy Spirit to walk with him, with his people until he takes you home. That's the invitation to you to come and follow Jesus. Repent and trust in Jesus. As a society, God's word to the society is we have freedom of religion. Uh, in, in this country, according to our constitution, there can be no established church by the government. And that's a good thing. You can't establish a church. There's a freedom, freedom of religion. But even though there's freedom of religion, and even though there's no established church, there is an established judge of the universe. And he will judge the society. And... Even though there's no established, uh, even though there's a freedom of religion, there is no freedom from the final judgment. And your neighbors, our nation, and all the nations need to hear that judgment's coming for all of us. Everyone, every society, every culture, every group, every person. So realize your accountability to him. You can't be free from that. The good news is that God warns us. God doesn't have to warn you today. Anyone who's hearing my voice or reading the book of Amos and applying it properly to themselves you're being warned by God. That's his love to you. That's his kindness. Praise God that he ordained that you would come here this morning to hear this judgment so that you could think about your life. That's the first thing. Okay, so hear God's just judgment on the nations. Number two, hear God's just judgment on Israel. All right, hear God's just judgment on Israel. His quote unquote people, his people, okay? And um, we're gonna, now we're going to skip some verses again, but this is chapter 2, five, two 6 all the way to chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, okay? So let's cover four chapters here on this point. Here we see 
that God declares judgment. Look, look at the judgment he declares on two, in 2.13. What's the judgment? What's the decision? 2.13 says, look, I am about to what? Crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Therefore, the Lord God says, here's the judgment. An enemy will surround the land, and this enemy, he will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. Fire! He's going to burn up your citadels and take your stuff. Chapter 5, verse 27, which we read at the beginning, but let's read it again. Here it is explicit. Here's what God's saying. Here's the judgment on Israel. I will send you into what? Into what? Say it together. Into what? Exile. exile. This is, if you're going to understand the prophets, you have to understand exile. Exile is being kicked out of the what? The land, the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. God's people kicked out of God's place because they rejected God's rule. Now we have Israel in God's place. Have they rejected God's rule? Well, we're going to read about their sins in a second. They have rejected God's rule. We'll read the specific rejection. And so therefore now they will also get exiled from God's place, the promised land. What was their sins? What's the sins that they, what's, what's the rule of God that they rejected if the kingdom of God is his sinner saving, curse reversing reign and rule and they're rejecting this rule, what did they reject specifically? So if anyone rebukes you, don't be defensive when someone rebukes you for your sin, but you do need to ask this question. Can you please help me understand biblically what my sin is? That's a good question to ask, right? Don't do, don't do that in defensiveness to stump them. But when someone says, hey, PJ, you sinned against me, I hope I would say thank you. Can you show me or tell me exactly what my sins were? Not because I want to fight over words, but I do want to hear what my sin is. So when God rebukes, he rebukes with specificity at times, and he does right here. So let's listen to some of their rebukes, okay? Look at what they do here. Look at what Israel does. In chapter 2, verse 6. Go back to chapter 2, verse 6. What do they do wrong? Here are their crimes. I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because, here it is, here's one of their sins, or we're going to name at least, I'm going to give you six categories of sin. Here's the first one. Because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals, they trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. What sin is that? They oppress the poor and the righteous. Oppression. You don't have to be a Marxist to believe in oppression. You just need to read your Bible. Now, Marxists categorize oppression apart from personal sin and apart from God. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the political, philosophical, or cultural Marxism that's thrown around a lot in Christian circles today. We're talking about legitimate oppression, sin. We're talking about corporate, cultural patterns of sin in a society that oppresses the poor and the needy. God holds them accountable for that. They sell the poor for sandals, the, the newest Air Jordans. That's what they do. They're materialistic, and they'll prey on people for their style. Not only that, listen to this about, about, that, about oppressing and obstruct, obstructing the path of the needy. You know, poor people in courts have less resources than rich people, right? With lawyers and things like that. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we got, those are things that if you care about society, you have, doesn't mean everyone has to do everything, but we have to care about our neighbors, you got to care about these things. You can't be indifferent to them and honor God. You could reject God's word and be indifferent, but you can't if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. But look at what God calls this 
societal oppression of the poor. Let me actually read one more verse on oppression poor and then go back to chapter two. Look at chapter four, verse one. Listen to this, you cows of Bashan. That's what he calls the rich women, cows. You wanna insult a woman. You know, he's insulting the rich women here. He says, you cows of Bashan. And he's not talking about their girth or their size. Who are on the hills of Samaria. What, what is, how are they like cows? Women who what? Oppress the poor and crush the needy. Who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. Here they are just trampling on things and, and grazing and, and feeding off of others like cows. And so this is oppressing the poor and the righteous. Now, what does God call this? Look at, go back to chapter two, verse seven. I just think this is really neat when you look at Amos. Okay, I want you to put your biblical antennas up. I want, you to, I want to see if you sense anything here. Look at 2.7. They, these oppressors, Israel, the society, they trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. What do you hear there? They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. Anyone sense any biblical reference being played on here? Like the serpent, the garden, right? He's going to crawl on the dust of the ground and, and, and um, someone's going to strike his head and he will strike the heel. In other words, Israel, you were called as the holy priesthood, the royal nation, to, to obey God and bless the poor and have a just and righteous society where you care for everybody and everybody who becomes part of your people gets blessed and feels the blessing of God because of the way you relate to each other. And instead of doing that, you have become like the serpent. You, instead of serving the poor, you're trampling on the heads of the poor, on the dust of the ground. Jesus wasn't completely original when he said, you are of your father, the devil. That's a biblical idea. Amos alludes to it here. You act like the devil. You live like the devil when you don't care about your neighbors and their difficulties and you only care about yourself. So that's one sin that he identifies. The second sin in chapter two, verse seven is sexual immorality. Look at chapter two, verse seven again. A man has, and his father have sexual relations with what? With who? With the same girl, profaning my holy name. Paul has the same situation that happened in the church, right? First Corinthians five, a man has his father's wife and they don't discipline. They don't excommunicate. They don't exile the person. They don't judge. They just let it go. Is sexual immorality acceptable in our culture today? In our society? In our churches? Does it, does it run in our churches? It does. It has. It shouldn't. Now, when you guys say no, I, I think you're speaking of the biblical ideal, and you're right. But in our churches, it happens. In this church, it happens. Sexual morality. What do we do with it? What do they do with it? Well, they accepted it. It's not my job to confront. Who am I to correct? That's the pastor's job. Not if you're a member of Bethany Baptist Church. You took responsibility for each other's discipleship, didn't you? Yeah, you did. But they did too, well, but they didn't follow out their covenant. They accepted sexual morality. Not, let's go on. Not only that, here's a third sin. So they have oppression of the poor, sexual morality. Here's another sin. Chapter two, verse eight. They stretch out beside every altar on the garments taken as collateral and in the, and the house of their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. So they overcharge people, they get wine and they get drunk at the altar of God. Now, whether it's the house of God, um, well, they, actually, they don't have the house of God in Israel. They're in, in the north. So uh, their own altars, their own high places where they worship, um, they might be trying to worship the God who redeemed them from Egypt. 
Yahweh or some other God. But either way, they, they lay out, they get drunk, and they, they try to be religious. We're devoted. And yet, they're, still, they're actually worshiping an idol. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You get the same idea in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and what? Now, Bethel means house of God. Come to the house of God and what? Rebel. You don't go to the house of God to rebel against God, but here's God's sarcastic. You know, you know um, parents, when, you, when you're mad at your kids and you start telling them to do something that is bad for them, right? Like, oh, you want to play with fire? Fine, go play with fire. You know, go see what happens. Um, I remember one time my, um, my oldest brother, he tells this story a lot, but me and my um, older brother, uh, we were fighting one time and, um, and uh, we got in this big fight and then my brother, we were shouting at each other, we're, we're about to come to, to actually fight each other. And my, my oldest brother, so this is my older brother, my oldest brother takes two knives out, huge, huge kitchen knives, and he puts them in our hands. And we're like, I'm like five years old or six years old, and my brother's like eight or nine, and he says, go, you want to kill each other? Fine, go kill each other. And we're like crying. We're not, we're not, like, no, I was like, I was, like he always makes fun of me, I was crying, like, I don't want to kill my brother, you know? <laughs> and so, um, it backfired on my oldest brother, though, because we got in a neighborhood fight a few weeks later, and, like, I ran back in, and my brother's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm getting a knife. We're about to fight outside <laughs> with our neighbors. And my brother's like, no, you can't. You can't do that. Anyways. But the, the idea, the idea of, like, command, like, my oldest brother was not literally commanding us to take knives and kill each other. He was more like, you're fine. You, it was sarcastic, right? You want to fight? You guys want to fight about this dumb little thing? Fine. Take knives and kill each other then. And that's what God's doing here. Listen, so listen to God's commands here. They're sarcastic. Come to Beth, come to the house of God and rebel. That's a command. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tenths every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you love to do, Israelites. Now God's not happy here. You know what Bethel is? So if you, um, when you think about Bethel, this is in 1 Kings 12, 28 to 30. Beth, so when Israel and Judah broke up, where was the temple? In Judah or Israel? North or south? Where was the temple of God? In the south. So when they broke up, King Jeroboam said, if my people keep celebrating Passover and the Day of Atonement, they have to go back to the south, they're going to turn back to him and I'm going to lose my kingdom. Even though God promised Jeroboam that he wouldn't lose his kingdom if he would just obey. Okay, but that's what we do when we sin. Okay, so what does, what does, what does Jeroboam do? In Bethel and then in the north, he builds two golden calves. And he says, this is your God who brought you from Egypt. Worship here. You don't need to go to Judah. Stay here. Now, who's, what's the name of the God who brought them out of Egypt? What's his name? In the Old, his, his Old Testament name, what's his name? Yahweh. So here, Jeroboam is saying, you guys want to worship Yahweh? Just like in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Bethel and in the north, go there. You don't have to go to Judah. So here's what God's saying. Here's what Yahweh's saying. Okay, go. Go to Bethel. Yeah, go, go bring your offerings there. I, I love it. You guys are doing great. But God is angry because what they do and what we do is we try to worship Jesus in our own image, in our own way. We try to edit the Bible. It's still the God who redeemed us from Egypt. It's still Jesus who died on the cross. And yet you're rejecting what the Bible actually tells you about how to worship Jesus. When you don't follow the Bible in worshiping Jesus as a church family, some people get mad I'm a stickler for what we do in our Sunday gatherings. When we don't worry about what we do as a gathered church and as individuals, if we're not carefully following the Bible, you will get traditions from the outside. And you will think you're worshiping Jesus. And unwittingly, you've slowly worshiped other things. It happens in churches. It happens in churches. It happened to Israel. 
And God says, fine, keep coming. Yeah, yeah, I love your offerings. Keep going to Bethel. Keep going to the golden calf. Keep worshiping there. That's great. It's a syncretism that looks like true Christianity in, in our days, but it's false Christianity. Be careful, brothers and sisters. This is the way I categorize this, and it's, like, it's a religious show with compromise. It's a religious show, but there's compromise. Editing God down. A fourth sin, chapter 2, verse 12. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. You made the Nazarites, these are supposed to be like these dedicated servants of God. You made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets. What did, they, what did the people of God command the prophets? Don't what? Prophesy. Now what is the one job of a prophet? To prophesy. And say, hey, we love you prophets. I just ask you to just do one favor for me. Just don't prophesy. But everything else you do, I love. Just, just don't prophesy. So what have they done? They have, reject, they have corrupted the messengers. They try to get the prophets and Nazarites drunk. And then they tell the prophets to shut up. I know for some parents that's a bad word, but they're literally telling their parents, I'm quoting here, you know, be quiet. But they're saying it in a mean way, kids. Don't say it yourselves. But, um, but they are telling, in a very mean, God-rejecting God way, they are telling the prophets to shut up. That's what they're saying, sinfully. And so um, God judges them for that. They obviously don't want to hear from him. Chapter 3, verse 10, we're told that they're incapable of doing right, but we're going to skip over that one. And then chapter 4. Now, everyone turn to chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. I want you to feel, if you're going to feel the roar of God's judgment, you have to feel the terribleness of their sin. So I'm going to read 6 through 11. I want you to see, there's a phrase that's going to be repeated five times, and I want you to see it. This is how bad Israel was. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat, so I'm punishing you in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities. Yet you did not what? Return to me. Even though I punished you, try to get your attention, you didn't return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. By the way, this is all in Leviticus 26, by the way, this curse, this progression of curses. I also withheld rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One received rain while the other field had no rain, and it withered. Two or three cities staggered, to another city to drink water, but we're not satisfied. So I did that, and yet you did not return to me, the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I let you lose battles, in other words. I caused your stench, the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils with all the dead. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire. Yet you did not return to me. Okay. Five times. What's their sin? They would, they would not what? Return. In other words, their hearts were what? Their hearts were hard. Have you, this is God saying what you heard your parents say many times. How many times do I have to tell you? Fill in the blank, right? This is God saying to Israel and saying to us, Bethany Baptist Church, I did this and yet you don't, yet you don't repent. I do this, yet you don't repent. I get your attention this way, yet you don't repent. You keep falling back to the same patterns and habits of your sins. How many times do I have to tell you? How many ways do I need to get your attention? How many crises do I have to put you through until you realize that you're sinning and you need to repent? That you need to return to me? You're just going to keep complacent with your habits of sin over and over. 
putting band-aids on huge wounds as if that heals anything. And God has had it with Israel. And if we're not careful, he can have it with us as well. And so we need to let this roar sink in, that God punishes us, he punishes them, disciplines them and punishes them because of their oppression of the poor, sexual immorality, religious compromise and show, corrupting their messengers, telling their messengers to be quiet, they're incapable of doing right, and they're hard-hearted, stubborn impenitents who get rebuked over and over and over and over again, yet never finally truly repent. And so God is going to judge them. Now in the midst of this judgment, he calls them to something. So let's turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, God is a lion and he does roar, but I want you to feel God's soft side. He does have a soft side. Chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this message that I am singing for you. What is God doing? Singing. God wants you to hear his song. He's singing for you. And what kind of song is it? A what? A lament house of Israel. And here's a song. I'm not going to sing it for you guys. I'm just going to read it. God's singing it. I'm reading it. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. This is a sad song. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. Song continues for the Lord God says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will only have 10 left in the house of Israel. Here's God's sad song. Israel disobeyed me. Israel's getting judged. And here's where I want you to feel the heart of God's love. He sings and he laments. He grieves. Jesus told us, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. God laments. God mourns. Now he's sovereign over the whole thing. He ordained the whole thing. He's not surprised by anything. In one sense, God never changes, but God is still very personally interacting. He's 100% interacting all the time. And so God laments and he grieves over their hard-hearted sin and their punishment of exile. Just like a parent, when they spank their child and they see their child's face and they know they, they're crying and, and your compassion goes out where you'd rather not spank, but you know you have to, to do it well and good and right. And so you do it with grief and you almost wish you couldn't. That's God here lamenting over what, his, what he must righteously do. And then he calls them. And here's his call. And I said it in my main goal, because the main goal is to feel God's roaring judgment so that you truly seek God and seek good. Here's the call. Look at 5.4. What does God say? For Lord God says to the house of Israel, what's the command in verse 4? Seek me and li live. Seek who? Seek me. And who's speaking? God. So seek God. And then you go to chapter 5, verse 14. The word there, pursue, it's the same word seek in Hebrew. Seek what? Seek good and not evil. So here's God's command. Okay. Okay, you, f you start to feel the judgment. Here's what God's saying. Seek God and seek good. That's the call. If you're gonna understand Amos, if you're gonna repent and feel the judgment, you need to seek God and then seek good to those around you. If you don't do that, you're not seeking God or good. They're a package deal. What does God mean by, when he says seek God, what he's saying here is love him, honor him, enjoy him. When we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's only because he first loved us. When you see the love of God, the majesty of God, the grace of God, that he would send his son to die for your sins and rise from the dead, and when that overwhelms you, and when that is your priority to, to rejoice in God, 
then, then, then the goodness that flows from your life comes from joy. God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. And he loves a cheerful servant, not a complaining servant, not a cantankerous servant, not a bemoaning servant, not a slandering and gossiping servant. He loves a cheerful giver, a cheerful servant, because the people who love to serve, they love God most of all. They enjoy God. So God is saying, seek me. I'm your goal. I'm your joy. I'm your treasure. All these other gods that you seek, they're false gods. They're false treasures. They're going to leave you broken, empty, and damned in the end. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. So when you seek God, that's the priority of our lives, really, to enjoy God, to delight in God, to worship God. And that's good news, that God's goal is his greatest command is his greatest gift, himself. His greatest command is for you to worship him. And his greatest joy is to give himself to you because he's the greatest joy in the universe. And so if that's true, he says, seek me in light of your social sins. Let's go over. Now, Amos is, if you think I'm highlighting the social sins because of the discussion today on social justice, read Amos again. You, You can't miss this emphasis on social societal sins and societal justice. I would say social justice, but for some that's a bad word. Societal justice, if you like. Same thing. All right, here it is. Um, five, chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. They hate the one who can... Here's their sin. Here's why you need to seek God and then seek good. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. So if you have a righteous judge who's convicting the right people, they hate it. And they despise the one who speaks with what? With integrity. Therefore, because you trample on who? on the poor, and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses cut of stone you have built. What's God's, why is God angry as he calls them to seek him? You reject your neighbors. You fail to see, I would say, to the American churches today. So American churches, listen up here. I'm going out from Israel today. American churches and American individualism and personal responsibility, which is a biblical teaching, personal responsibility is a biblical teaching, because you emphasize that, you can miss the corporate responsibility. There are cultural patterns that we must take responsibility for as members of that culture, of that society. There are societal patterns that we contribute to with our participation, our indifference, or our action. You can't avoid it. You are a communal being. It's not just you and God. We know that in our church family. Your, your life affects the whole church. Same thing, your, your life here affects your whole, your whole society. And so God will not allow the religious excuse that as long as you personally repent from sin, you're okay from your own personal sins. You need to repent of your own personal participation in corporate sins. Okay. And so, what's the call in 14 and 15? If you're going to understand this corporate sin, I'm sorry, verse 12 as well, they oppress the righteous and take a bribe. They deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. The city gates is the court. They can't afford a good defense, so you take advantage of it. Okay, so what's God's call in verse 14? 14 and 15, here it is. Here's the application again. If you're gonna seek God, you also have to seek what? Good and not evil. Don't say you seek God and you're not seeking good. Pursue good and not evil so that you may what? Live. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of armies will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Establish justice. Work for justice in the society. So if you don't like social justice, and you might not because there are some bad things that get caught up with it, the way people use it. They use it for sinful things to promote sin, right? Like um, abortion, for example, or 
um, LGBT agendas that would um, really demean even those who participate in those activities uh, in terms of their image bearing. They use that under social justice. If that's what social justice is, then reject that. But if we're talking about justice for the society in the city gates, of course we work for justice in society. Of course we do. So we repent, we seek God, because if we don't, actually if we don't, what's the judgment? Look at verses 16 17. Because they didn't seek God and seek good, therefore the Lord God of armies, the Lord says this, there will be what? Wailing in all the public squares, they will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in the vineyards. Why? For I will, for I will what? Pass among you, says the Lord. Do you hear that? Just, we're going to go to our third point here, but let me just say this here for the last point here. I will pass among you. What does that mean? I'll pass through you. Pass through and not pass. Come on, Old Testament. Not, not pass through and not pass over. In Israel, on, in the Exodus, God passed over Israel, but he passed through Egypt, right? And what's God saying? Because you don't seek me and because you don't seek good, I am not going to pass over you. I'm going to pass through you and judge you with exile. That's God's roar of the lion here, and God deplores and denounces them. So what, what is God calling us to do? Church family, Bethany Baptist Church, here's what God's saying. Care for your neighbors. You cannot be indifferent to your neighbors and love God. You cannot, you cannot, care, you cannot seek God and not seek the good of every member in this church who's different than you in terms of ethnicity or social class. You have to care about all of them. And even your non-Christian neighbors. You don't have the option. If you're going to seek God, you have to seek good. You have to, to think about the cultural patterns. And you have to speak into those things biblically. Now, this is not new. This is our, in our church statement of faith. This is what we said on the Christian and social order. Recognizing whose created order this is, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the scriptural principles of righteousness, truth, and love. Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause without compromise to Christ. He's our Lord. Improvement of society can be permanently helpful only when rooted in the regeneration of individuals. So even if you do good in society, is it going to be permanent? If they're not, if they're not born again, is it going to be permanent? Yes or no? No. But you still work for it. Now, um, what we prayed for... Um, Hickwood Community Church, what we pray for our church, evangelism, that is our priority because conversion and final salvation is our goal. But that doesn't mean we don't care about temporary good as well. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. But we care about all suffering and all injustice as well. Okay, so let's go to this last point. So we need to, we need to look in the mirror, repent from our own sins, societally. So we heard God's judgment on the nations, God's judgment on Israel, and lastly, See God's judgment and seek good. Okay, because I only have seven minutes left and we got three chapters, I'm just going to summarize the visions. You could read it for homework. But here it is. Vision one. Okay, to see God's judgment, I want you to kind of picture these visions. Let me paint them for you briefly. Um, Amos sees locusts sweeping through the land and taking away all their food. And then Amos prays, God, are you going to wipe us out? Don't wipe us out. Please forgive us. And then God says... Or then, then Amos tells us, God relents. I'm not going to wipe you completely out. And then 
he sees fire judgment breaking out. The second vision is fire. So first locusts, then he sees fires breaking out, all their cities being burned down, all their homes being burned down. And he sees that and he says, God, please forgive. Don't, don't decimate us. And then God says, all right, I won't, full, I won't totally destroy. So you get the same message twice. Is God judging, yes or no? Yes. Is he gonna totally destroy them where he wipes them out completely and Israel's completely gone? Yes or no? No. He will destroy and judge, but not totally. That's the message of the first two. With fire and locust. Utter decimation, but not complete, permanent decimation. Okay, vision three is a plumb line. And God says, I'm gonna judge you according to the standard of the plumb line. Now, I should know this, and everyone's gonna make fun of me because I, don't, I couldn't think of the, the name of it um, this morning. What's the thing um, where you measure if this is level or not, right? There's a little bubble in the liquid. What do you call that thing? Leveler? <laughs> to see if it's level or not? That's a good name for it, leveler. Yeah, so you put a leveler on here. I told you you're gonna make fun of me, that's okay. It's called a level, to level things, to see if it's level. Okay, good. This is where the 4G's come in handy, right? Um, God, is, God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself, right? Amen? All right, level, listen. Um, there's a, it's a standard and you could, objective, you could objectively tell whether this is level or not, right? That's what the plumb line is. God's saying, I'm judging you and I have an objective standard that is unbreakable. It's, it's the law covenant of Moses, through Moses. So when I'm judging you, it's not like I'm being arbitrary. I'm not being picky. I have a Bible. I wrote to you the law covenant, the Israeli covenant with Moses. It's a plumb line. It's a level. And it's showing whether you're off or not. So I'm not arbitrarily picking on you. I'm going to judge you justly according to my word. That's, that's that third vision, that plumb line, to check if the, the wall was actually um, upright. Okay, and then um, the fourth vision. You should read chapter uh, 7, 10 through 17. It's, that, it's, a, it's a personal story that illustrates Israel's problem where, where this prophet is telling, where this guy in Israel is telling Amos to be quiet. Just like the nation tells the prophets to be quiet. And then he's gonna get judged just like the nation gets judged. Okay, fourth vision here, um, there's basket fruit. So you have here, the fruit is ripe. So when you see ripe fruit or overripe fruit, when you see ripe fruit hang, hanging on the trees and on all the crops, what do you do? It's time to what? Pick them. It's time to harvest them, right? So what is God saying about Israel when he sees ripe fruit? The judgment time is here. It's ripe. It's time for judgment. Judgment is right now. It's about to come. The, the, the exile is about to come. The time is ripe, ripe for harvest because of your sin. And in the fifth vision, we'll, we'll, we'll go from the fifth vision here to this closing. The fifth vision is the vision of God declaring from the altar, judgment is coming. Okay, everyone look up here for a second. This is chapter nine, verse one, okay? God is declaring in the vision from the altar that judgment is coming. Declaring from the altar. Do you know anywhere in Revelation where there's an altar and God is speaking? It's Revelation six. It's the fifth, fifth trumpet? Yeah, it's the fifth trumpet. After the four horsemen, it's the fifth Fifth, um, or fifth seal. The fifth seal that's broken, Revelation chapter six, verses nine through 11. God is there at the altar and the saints under the altar are the ones who are killed. It's the prophets and the apostles and the saints who were killed for standing up for, for God's word. And they say, how long, O Lord, until you judge? And God says in Revelation, you guys wait here a little longer and then I'm gonna judge. You wait until all of the rest of the saints who are gonna be killed come in and then I'm gonna judge. That's Revelation. Now here, it's, it's actually the exact opposite message. It's not contradicting. It's giving the, the, the final picture. Revelation gives us a, a more 
contemporary picture, actually. The final picture, though, is God is saying from the altar, I will look at chapter 9, verse 1. The Lord standing beside the altar says, Strike the capitals and the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Knock them down on the heads of all the people. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. Now, he's going to kill. He's going to do final judgment. And in case you think people get away with injustice, don't some people get away with injustice? I just watched The Godfather this past week. Somebody seen The Godfather? It's like, so my neighbor here got me on it, and now like it's quickly become one of my favorite movies. There's all kinds of injustice. You're like, get them, get them, you know. Because um, you, you want the injustice to be made, but at the end you're still cheering for another unjust person. Um, but here's the thing. You see a lot of people get away with crimes, right? Now, will, will they get away before God? Look at chapter 9, verse 2, or 9-1. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. If they dig down into Sheol, if they go underground, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven in the sky, they go to outer space, from there I will bring them down. If they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my sight on the seafloor, from there I will command the sea serpent to bite them. Wow, you go to the bottom of the sea, a sea serpent's going to bite you. A shark's going to get you. And if they are driven by their enemies into captivity, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Here's the point, brothers and sisters and friends. You will not escape judgment. There is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide. There is not one thought that you have thought in your, rebellious, in your rebellion against God that will not be judged. There is no hiding. There is no running. There is only judgment to come. Do you hear the lion roar? Does it make you tremble? But you have to stand before this God in judgment because you will. Here's the good news. The good news in verse 8 is that he won't totally destroy the house of Jacob. He won't totally destroy us either. Look at verse 11. Here's the promise. Let's close here with some gospel goodness before we go because judgment is coming. Here's the goodness. 9-11. In that day, I will restore the shelter of who? David. Now, David's been dead for at least 200 years. Who's the David that he's going to restore? Jesus. I will repair its gaps Restore its ruins, rebuild it in the days of old. I'm going to rebuild this king and his palace so that they, my people, may possess the remnant of Edom and all the what? Nations. That's the word Gentiles. All the Gentiles that bear my name. Now, this is picked up in Acts 15 when the Gentiles are going to get rules from whether, should we make the Gentiles um, eat or not? Um, should we make them follow Jewish rules or not? And the answer was no. And they quote this verse. What are they saying? When King David returns, and who's the king who returns? Jesus. He will save not only Israel, but he will save the Gentiles. And they will be called by the name of Yahweh. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Yahweh, the name of the Lord Jesus, will be saved. And he will save them from their sins. And what happens after God saves them from their sins? Look at verse 13. Here's the new heavens and the new earth. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will overflow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted for the land I have given them, from the land I have given them, Yahweh your God has spoken. They will be back in a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And brothers and sisters, here's the good news for you. If you're a Gentile or a Jew and you come to the Lord Yahweh, you come to the Lord Jesus, he will return. He came to die for our sins and rise from the dead. He's in heaven. He gave us his spirit. He's going to come again. And when he comes, we will reign with him in the land forever and ever and ever. 
but you don't get there until you feel the judgment of God and you repent from your sins. You seek God and you seek good as he transforms you. And then we enter the new earth when Christ returns. That's the good news. That's the invitation. So my call to you, my final call of action to you is this. Um, do, when, when I say seek God, you also need to seek what? Seek God and seek good. Here's, what I'm, here's my challenge to you, my one challenge to you this week. Do one good thing for somebody else, not in your family, after or as a response to reading the Bible and repenting from sin. I'm not just telling you to do good. I'm not just telling you to seek God. I'm telling you to do your devotions this week, read your Bible, find some sin that you're committing to repent from, and then do something good in response to what you read from the Bible. Okay? One thing this week. Seek God and then seek good. If you don't, you will grow in hypocrisy. You will grow in your deafness to hearing God's word and you will incur a deeper judgment as you read, 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 learn, 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 and not do any good. Instead, if you do this, you will find and enjoy God because I'm not telling you just to do good. I'm telling you to go to God first. You will find joy in repentance and renewal. You will feel God move you towards goodness and you will experience his, his kingdom that is here now, his sinner-saving curse-reversing rule now, and you'll experience it more as you walk with him. And so do good, but seek God first. Seek God, seek good in light of his judgment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come soon. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Until you come, Lord, help us to seek you. We want you. We need you. We seek you. Lord Jesus, show us your glory. Draw near to us.